the Y Curve with Phil Dobby and Roger Hearing. 82 episodes in 82 weeks. Mathematically simple. That's the story of the Y Curve so far. And so far we've covered a whole gamut of contemporary topics delving deeper than most mainstream media. War, public services, society, the royals, the economy, politics. We've touched on all of them. And we've spoken to a lot of experts. It's been a genuine learning experience. And it doesn't stop here, of course. Next year, we will keep inquiring, keep exploring, and hopefully doing it in an entertaining way. Well, we could give it a try anyway. Well, we, I mean, entertaining, <laughs> elucidating, educate, inform. No, that's BBC, isn't it? But for our last Y-Curve of the year, we look back at some of the standout guests from the last year and a half, and some of them have had a pretty good handle on the way things were going to turn out. That's what we're going to do this week on the Y-Curve. The Y. So we are leaving 2023 wondering whether there will ever be peace in the Middle East. Hamas and Israel seem entrenched. There are probably more Hamas supporters in Palestine now, not less as the civilian body count mounts. But does Israel care? Well, maybe not that much. I mean, Michaela Groppi uh, of the Defence Studies Department at the King's College London spoke to us back in October saying Israel probably isn't too concerned about the tide of public opinion. We we have to take a number of... uh uh, important uh, cons- uh, considerations into account to understand uh, why they want to do this, not just define it, but at least understand it. Uh, have you ever heard of uh, siege mentality? It's something very recurrent in uh, Israeli strategic thinking. Um, r- paraphrase brutally, everybody's against us. Even our friends, our friends today will be tomorrow's enemies. We cannot trust anyone because our history shows so. Hence, nobody right now is in a position to teach us anything about morality. We have to take action. Inaction is politically uh, not palatable. We have to do something. And uh, given that the killing has been so indiscriminate and so brutal, and as you were saying, like ISIS uh, style like type of thing, it brings up incredible painful memories from the Holocaust, from from those days in which we felt um, impotent, in which we felt powerless, we couldn't do anything about it, and we just took it, never again. Right. And uh, uh, and therefore, you know, like something like this uh, uh, is going to motivate and fuel a lot of. Anger. But, but Michele Groppi there with uh, has to be said, uh, well, a pretty depressing idea of what will come uh, between Israel and the Palestinians. And the interesting thing is that conversation happened mm. before the invasion. We actually spoke to him the week before. Yeah. Uh, and of course now, you know, big question marks about Israel's tactics in that war. Seems seems. I mean, even if they have momentary pauses, any of them going to move into a form of. A permanent ceasefire and what on earth happens next in Gaza, no one really knows. So there's a war with no obvious conclusion. There's another one, of course, that fits that bill. Uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine back in February, we called it the endless war when we, spoken to, we spoke to Stefan Wolf, Professor of International Security at the University of Birmingham. We asked him, how could it end? Eventually, um, I mean, Ukraine has such clear superiority uh, on the ground uh, that um, the Russians would uh, sort of offer uh, uh, reasonable terms uh, initially for a ceasefire and then potentially for a political uh, uh, solution that would give them an opportunity um, to get out in a similar way in which they um, evacuated uh, a large part of their forces from uh, Kherson uh, last year. Um, but that obviously will will take time and it will cost uh, lives, it will uh, cost uh, uh, treasure. 
and it will potentially lay waste uh, um, to many, many more towns and cities uh, of Ukraine in the process of um, of getting there. And, you know, at least 10,000 civilians have died yeah. in that war so far. We don't actually know the I number, think it must do be we? Higher. It must be a higher number, and certainly the combatants on each side, mm. vast numbers. And the suggestion now that, that, in a way, the West maybe is getting bored or tired of it, not supporting Ukraine enough, and in the end... Well, a terrible way to end, though. Well, Just of, you know, end a war out of boredom. But look, I mean, there's no end in sight, isn't no. there? And of course, you know, the money side of it as well, of course. You know, well, that's, Just that's the key. The Americans are holding up uh, their kind of side of, of, of getting money into into Ukraine for their own domestic political reasons, and Putin really just has to sit there and wait. Yeah, well, war is very difficult to fix because, you know, we have two sides fiercely opposed to each other. But you'd have thought the NHS, now that would be a, a war of a different kind, really, a war against disease, a war against, in a way, people living unhealthy lifestyles. But you would have thought we'd all be on the same side on that, you'd wouldn't hope, you? You'd yeah. hope, um, because everyone wants a better health service. Mm. So why is it in such a mess? Well, that's a question we put to Tim Gardner, Senior Policy Fellow at the Health Foundation, asked whether there was a better approach in charging people, perhaps, who can afford to see a doctor. Um, still government-run, of course, but we would part pay. Would that work? I, I, I don't think so, frankly. Um, it's something that has been suggested quite a lot. Um, but in, in general, it's quite hard to design a system that charges people to access care that is a fair and efficient way of raising extra revenue. Um, one of the big advantages we do have in, in the UK for, with a tax-funded health system is that the tax system exists and it's relatively progressive and relatively efficient in the first place. So if we want to increase the total amount that we spend on healthcare because we want to get a better service, by far the most efficient and progressive and fairest way of doing that is, is to pay more in taxes. Rather but but we're, talking, we're talking as if the whole thing is actually pretty good and we're doing OK. But I mean, if you look across the, the system as it is now, in comparison with G7 outcomes, health outcomes for people in other comparable G7 countries, if you just look at the daily records of people waiting for ambulances, ambulances backed up outside A&E wards, lack of GPs, lack of being able to get GP appointments, the general feeling people have is this a system that isn't working and we're, on, we're not quite in winter yet. And the health service, certainly people I talk to who work in it, say it's already on its knees. So something is going badly wrong, isn't it? I, I wouldn't disagree at all that, that something is clearly badly amiss with, with our system. I think what it comes back to, though, is, is that a feature of our system in particular, or is that a, a function of the amount we have invested in that system over, the t over time and how well we run it. Because there's nothing that is fundamentally incompatible with a tax-based system like the health service and deciding to recruit more GPs, for, for instance, or having more paramedics, having more capacity in hospital beds. There, you know, it, it comes down to a political choice. If we were willing to have made that choice and, and committed to it, then we would be in a better position than we are now. As simple as that, Roger. You mm. just need to make the political choice and the money <laughs> magically will come from somewhere. Well, What is the prescription for NHS? That's a Y-curve episode from October of last year. But, I mean, where do you draw the line? Because drugs are getting more expensive, people are getting older, there are new treatments, of course, that are helping us to live longer. We just keep on 
paying for those. And then there's the question about obesity drugs as well. Remember that this mm. last year? Should the NHS pay for them to compensate? A lot, a lot of big companies made a lot of money out of those drugs. Yeah. And still are. And, you know, we talked about it on the podcast as to whether actually it was a, a lifestyle choice. Well, we spoke to Joanne Costa y Font, who's Professor of Health Economics at the London School of Economics. And he said on a Y-Curve episode from September called Tough Medicine, if you paid to help someone lose weight and they continue with their behaviours that added to their weight, should the NHS really keep on paying out? Right. So that, I think that if, they, if, if you're helping them and they continue doing the same, it means that you're not very effective at helping them. Right. So that means that you need to reconsider the ways of helping them. Uh, one one w- type of policies that now are being put forward are policies that use behavioral economics, that use uh, reminders. And we know that, for instance, we tend to have short memories, that uh, when we are prescribed a pill, we tend to forget it. Uh, After a while, uh, exercise the first two days uh, after making a a commitment, you know, we we, we do keep up with that commitment, but but, uh, a week into it, then we we end up forgetting. So so we need actually to uh, make better policies uh, for real people, people that make all sorts of mistakes. So what we cannot assume is the, the, the so let's say, mainstream sort of recommendations from the past where we assume that people are rational, right? So that they respond immediately to any tax incentive or, or any change in prices. You know, we live, we live in, 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 in context where actually uh, acting rationally is very difficult. So it's, it's what you call the nudge, uh, what they used to call exactly. nudging, isn't it? Exactly. Putting things in a way exactly. that make it easy for people to do the right thing. Precisely. And there's different ways of doing that. Uh, we could nudge, for instance, influencers. So there's, these days, the nudge agenda has evolved to the point that there's different ways to make sure that individuals actually stay committed to their promises. Most people don't want to be obese. If, if, if you're obese, often is the consequence of bad choices or poor choices that are the result of environments that, that people have not chosen in the first place. You know, my idea was we should just buy everyone a Fitbit, you know, so that for Christmas... The government pays, everyone yes. gets a present from Rishi. We all get monitored. It would then, you know, we'd be seen as a present from Rishi, you know, yes. would uh, help him yes. in the polls. I mean, give everyone your data, and why not? Exactly. We'd I mean, there's no to... way he would sell it to a big American health <laughs> provider. I mean, he just wouldn't do that, would he? <laughs> they would love it, wouldn't no. they? Absolutely. And, uh, you know, perhaps if you uh, if you you keep fit, you stay mm. out of hospital, you get some sort of tax incentive, yes. maybe, or a disloyalty card if ooh, you, uh, you know, if, if you're not in hospital, you get a disloyalty card for not being there it's like a reverse you might have version. to call it something else but yes <laughs> i see it would work anyway but it's not just the health service that's in a bit of a state mm. politics obviously are also a bit of a life support machine at the moment unelected prime minister holding on for as long as he can yes failing to deliver on any of his five promises remember those well Ex- well he did bring down inflation i mean it wasn't him but he know, personally brought yeah, down infl- yeah, yeah right mm. um also brought in the foreign secretary who wasn't an elected representative mm. and to rush uh, david cameron to the house of lords yes. uh, is that uh, desperation tactics or I what? I think so, wasn't it? Yeah. Mm. So is there a need for a rethinking politics, particularly when it comes to awarding of peerages in the House of Lords? We asked Dr. Sam Power of the University of Sussex whether it all needs a bit of a rethink. I always think of the, the, the giving of honours, but particularly the giving of resignation honours, as, as sort of one of those peculiar 
political things um, that does just feel a bit outdated. And we're not entirely sure where it came from anyway. And it just sort of now exists as a thing that is done. And it just seems a little bit bizarre. I always like to draw an analogy with the, uh, the, the, the practice in the USA of presidential pardons of, you know, an outgoing president just seeming to set free anyone that he feels like he deserves it. And it just seems a very odd thing to do in in, in a political system mm. and in a democracy. Well, it's kind of a monarchical power in a way, isn't it? Royal pardon kind of idea. Well, I mean, why not actually make it, a, given that we do have a royal family that doesn't have a lot to do, really, apart from, you know, go to openings and uh, stuff like that. Why don't we actually make it the job of the king to actually determine who is given knighthood? Well, in theory, and, I think that that's the way it's supposed to work anyway, isn't it, Sam? Well, that, that, that's precisely it. It's why... Why is it in the gift of the prime minister? And given that the gift of the prime minister is something that even if we accept that there's no cronyism and nepotism going on in these resignation honours or the honours appointment system more broadly, which is a pretty big if of all of the ifs out there, um, that actually... Uh, why why not put it in the hands of somebody else? Because the logic of resignation honours, the logic of the House of Lords full stop, is that it's a body of experts that oversees this legislation. And the idea that a prime minister of all people should should appoint some uh, appoint people, a, a process so open to, to abuse, sort of runs against the basic logic of the House of Lords in the first place. Yes, because it's a meritocracy, isn't it? And, you know, well, it's the House of is. Lords versus the House of Commons. So it's the experts versus, you know, the, the people who know nothing. It's just elected by the people. So supposedly the House of Lords is doctors, scientists, economists, maybe, at a push. And 28-year-old uh, <laughs> assistants from Downing Street now as well. So, uh, yeah. So, I mean, it, 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 the, the whole idea of who gets in there, it's, it's no longer based on expertise. Well, and exactly, it's or there's experts in there, and you can always go through a list of appointees, and you can say, well, that sort of broadly makes sense, and that person might add value to the chamber. Um, this, but then you do see lots of examples, and you see a lot in Boris Johnson's resignation list of just little added value, and I think that's the point that we need to think about: is this is a the second chamber of our democracy, and it is a fundamentally undemocratic institution. It's an appointed chamber, not an elected chamber. That's just a fact. So if we are to keep the appointed nature of our second chamber, if we think that is a really, really good thing to have, and that's a unique feature of our political system, then at the very least, we need to ensure that it works properly. Well, yes, I, uh, basically, I think we probably all agree with that. I mean, it's pretty so. obvious in a way. That was from an episode called Gong Wrong from June this year. But how far do you push political change? Very few people voted for Liz Truss, of course, you know. So, I mean, is that a failure in the system? System, where we have a prime minister, where even fewer, of course, voted for Rishi well, Sunak. Well, he wasn't even elected. It was just yeah. it was it was a show. So, what's gone wrong? Is it time for a change? Do we need a written constitution, perhaps? Well, we sort of thought so, didn't we? But then we spoke mm. to Robert Hazel, Professor of Government and the Constitution at University College London. He was dead set against the idea. I'd rather go the other way, um, and uh, in fact, limit uh, the number of people who can choose uh, the leaders of our major parliamentary parties. Because it's a relatively recent development, just of the last 20 to 30 years, that the leader of a party is elected by all the members of the party around the country, instead of, as used to happen, 
simply being elected by the parliamentary party, namely a new Conservative leader would be selected by the Conservative Party MPs and a new Labour would be Labour leader would be elected by the Parliamentary Labour Party. Um, and uh, I think, uh, I wish we could turn the clock back because I think MPs knew much better the strengths and weaknesses of uh, individual candidates standing for election, uh, whereas I think it's easier uh, for members of uh, the political parties at large um, to, in particular, um, be tempted to elect rather more populist leaders. Uh, and I think we've seen that in both parties with the election in the Labour Party of Jeremy Corbyn um, and with the election more recently uh, in the Conservative Party well, of Boris Johnson. Well, I guess that is fair enough. I mean, we vote for MPs mm. in that they should be our representatives. But, you know, how many people actually, when they voted for Boris, were voting for Boris? That's the problem, isn't it? They weren't saying, well, I'm going to vote for my yeah, local MP exactly. and let them choose. They chose their local MP. Often because people don't know who their MP is. Exactly. They are actually voting almost like the American system. Anyway, an interesting discussion there from last September, a Y-Curve episode called I Didn't Vote For It from that very short period when, when yeah. Liz Truss was Prime Minister. Subjects of many pub quizzes in the years to come, no yeah, doubt. Yeah, I think so. And we've spoken a fair bit about the environment of course, but maybe uh, we're going to have to stop talking about it in case we get locked up. I mean, certainly you don't want to show too much dissent in modern Britain. So Just Stop Oil have recently reported how one of their protesters, Stephen Gingell, was given a six-month jail sentence for being uh, involved in a slow march on a major London road for, I don't know, about half an hour. I mean, this is a guy who, who's married. He held down a job. He's got three children. He's yes. now... Respectable. Uh, yeah, well, you'd think so, wouldn't you? And now he's off to prison. And you think, you know, is that just a step too far? Because well, he was protesting about something that you would have thought we would all agree with. Unless you, you're trying to get somewhere fast and, and you've got the well, roadblock. Well, OK, yeah, but, you know... You you, know you, you, what about ambulances? You know, there's all sorts of lines. Sure, well, ambulances get affected by roadworks and all sorts of things. Well, this is they? true. This mm. is true. Anyway, we did an episode back in May called Protesting Too Much, The Rights and Wrongs of Public Dissent. And we spoke to David Mead, Professor of Human Rights Law at the University of East Anglia. The we've always had, and I've sort of talked about this a long time ago, I sort of, it, it's a bit like nimbyism. It's, we, we generally are tolerant of people's <laughs> right to protest until it, until it affects... I, I sort of mm, put, put nimbyism, nimbyism with a silent B, sort of protest but not in my backyard, a bit like pneumatic. Um, you know, so we generally are, are accepting of and supporting of it in the abstract... But we get very cross when we can't go to the shops because someone has sat down in the zebra crossing in front of, you know, in front of Tesco or Sainsbury's or something like that. And I think that's the, the sort of the disjuncture that we, we perhaps as a, as a public need to try and reconcile or, or have people help us reconcile is the, is the, is the value of protest as a, as a social as a social good, if you like. You know, the fact that I don't agree with it, you know, it comes back to, you know, Rousseau and all of those sorts of things, but, you know, the fact that I don't agree with it and perhaps vehemently oppose it should not ever be a reason for somebody's rights to be, you know, to be taken away. And I think it becomes very difficult when we are the immediate, if you like, target or incident of the target for us to sort of disjoin ourselves from the generally perceived view that protest is a good thing in a, in a, in a, in a democracy. Well, look, if it, whether or not people's tactics work, 
and again, this is sort of you know off 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 my area is 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 a different question to what should the law. Uh, you know whether this ultimately will backfire for just stop oil, you know, and, and XR. I, I I don't know, but the law needs to respond differently to how it's responding at the moment. So, protesting about the need to address climate change does seem to be a protest. Maybe we should all support, unless we think enough is being done already to address the issue, or perhaps some of us still don't believe in climate change. But even then, surely, I guess you accept the right for the majority to protest for more to be done. Well, you'd think so, wouldn't you? But, mm. you know, a lot of people who, who don't uh, believe in climate change don't think you should have the right to protest about it either. It's, uh, you know, it's all opinion, isn't it? But look, uh, it, it isn't enough being done, it seems, as we examined in an episode called World on Fire from July this year. Uh, but it's not too late, uh, surprisingly. Tim Lenton uh, said he's founder of Global Systems Institute and he's also chair in climate change and the earth science system at the University of Exeter. We spoke to him. So if we start with the extraordinary extremes, mm. they are, of course, a combination of the fact that um, in the background, the global warming has kept creeping up. But on top of that, we now find ourselves in the onset of what, is most likely to be a fairly strong El Nino. And we might also argue that as global warming increases, the extremes don't just kind of increase in proportion to the warming. So even without the El Nino, we're seeing evidence that at least the extremes and the damages associated with the extremes are going up what we would call non-linearly. So it's like a perfect storm, perhaps, if you put the El Nino on top of that. And that might be why we're seeing these completely off-the-scale events in terms of how far the sea surface temperatures are outside of normal variability at various times in bits of the North Atlantic or the Mediterranean, and how crazy the Antarctic sea ice cover changes are. These are statistically, we're talking about, in some cases, what might be one in many tens or hundreds of millions of years kind of uh, extreme. So you're really looking at the possibility now that we are starting to sample some other kind of regime of the weather or variability um, that's, that's being that's being influenced by the climate change. But the El Nino is a very convenient excuse, isn't it, for people who want to deny that we are having climate change. Yeah, that, uh, and I don't think they can pull that card in a sort of um, scientifically rigorous way because we've had past El Nino, it was a really big one in 1998, uh, but we can see... Um, extremes already now uh, that we didn't see then in simple terms. So uh, once we've lived through this El Nino, it'll be even clearer in a sense. Um, you know, okay, aspects of the pattern of change are the El Nino pattern of change, but some some levels of extremity of the extremes are not clearly not just the El Nino, they're the El Nino on top of quite a bit of warning. Yeah, so the question is, take out El Nino, how bad would it mm. be? It'd still be pretty bad, wouldn't it? And then look at the, you know, it keeps on going on. Mm. Look at the example of the flooding that we've seen over the last week or so in Queensland, Cairns Airport. Yes, crocodiles floating around. Exactly, they? jumping on planes and, uh, you know. Some, that's some nasty thing. things at airports, but not crocodiles, mostly. <laughs> so it just keeps happening. All right, well, let's, let's depress everyone even further because we could talk about the economy. Indeed, we should talk about the economy. Mm. Uh, we now know there won't be uh, a free trade agreement with not, the USA. 
were not a priority, not Rishi a priority. Sunak no, says. No, 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 even though, you know, so we went into Brexit yep. thinking that, you know, that it was a slam dunk. It was, we had it in the oven yep. as far as Boris was yeah, yeah. concerned. Uh, and Rishi now going, nah, mm. free trade deal with America, not that important. So how does the economy grow? Because we saw the worst of the downturn this year, of course. But around then, we spoke to Martin Wolf, and I asked whether the green transition money was going to the US because of the promise of public investment with their Inflation Reduction Act. That's clearly true. Um, and obviously, the UK can't win a subsidy war with the US and, and it can't offer opportunities of investment at scale that the US can. So businesses that really want to operate in a very large way are bound to be interested in investing in, in the US. And after that, the EU market as a whole, though nothing like as dynamic as uh, as the US is, is still very large for green technology because they've got a pretty big push in this. Britain on its own, first, it doesn't have a really deep commitment to this energy transition anyway. There's very little government money going into it. And in any case, the market is small. I mean, they're just reality. So, yes, of course, businesses going to operate in this area will want to list elsewhere and they will want to operate elsewhere. I mean, that's just inevitable. So the UK has become an attractive place for investment for financial services. So 76 financial service projects attracted uh, foreign direct investment last year, which is up 17% on the previous year. More than a quarter of all investment in uh, finance service projects in Europe are in the UK. So is that a good thing? I mean, presumably that means more jobs for more people in the city. Wow. Uh, but is that really helping the real economy? Is that something to boast about? Well, the, the statistics you give are very interesting, but I mean, it, Britain remains uh, a country with a very strong comparative advantage in financial services. This is relatively unaffected by leaving the single market because so much of um, you know the capital flows involved with finance are not actually directly affected at least so far, by EU regulation. So we can, London is still quite clearly the financial capital of Europe. It's the second great financial centre of the world. Uh, there's a lot of financial skill. Um, there are a lot of people from all over the world working in this sector. So I'm not in the least surprised that this is the one area or one area in which uh, um, there are lots of innovations and, um, and relatively large interest. In finance. So, you know, mm. at least we've got something to offer in this country. We still do finance well. We can still move money around and we can clip the ticket like the best of them or better than most, at least. So, so the ticket? Is, what's that mean? <laughs> Clipping the ticket. Come on, what's that, that mean? Is that an, 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 no. an Australian expression? Well, it's nothing I've ever heard. Oh, really? So you've got someone's taking a lot of money. You mm. take a little bit of it yourself. You're okay. clipping the ticket. Mm, oh, well, there we are. Well, I'm sure it's funny, isn't it? I keep on coming out with these uh, expressions. You're not really British, are you? Yeah, <laughs> I'm not. Well, I, I just came across Furphy the other day. I think that's no, what, what's a if, if something's not entirely true, you're, you're right. telling a furphy, no? Oh, porky is what you're saying. Yeah, well, you see, it's the same, it's mm, the same equivalent. Anyway, there we are. That was uh, an episode called Open for Business, that mm. episode, a brilliant episode with the FT's Martin Wolf back in June, mm. uh, talking about uh, yeah investment into the UK. So we're doing okay in finance, but there's not really much incentive for people to invest but, in anything else in this country. But what about debt? Because debt is a thing hanging around mm. our next public debt. Uh, will the situation get any better if we 
cut government debt if we get back to austerity? Well, we got an answer on that, and the answer was no. It won't help at all. That's what the economist Francis Coppola said when we spoke to her back in January. Yeah, yes. There's absolutely a strong argument for investing in public services. I saw a, a report by, of all people, Standard & Poor's, I mean, a credit rating agency, um, a few years ago now, arguing that what we call fiscal multiplier, which is the um, amount of growth you can get, really, for every one pound you spend into uh, the government spends into the economy the economy was something like 2.5 which is really very high and their argument was that it, that was mostly because of roads that we spend so much time sitting in traffic jams that it's a massive hit to productivity and we really really need to invest in our transport networks we still haven't done this. So we're still sitting in traffic jams and we still haven't got train train services that properly serve the whole country. And we still haven't got proper bus services and, you know, all these other things. And so we've still got a productivity drain because people because people and goods and services can't move. But if, if the government was to spend 120 or 140 billion in a month rather than 20 or 80 uh, what does that do to the private sector? Does it help the private sector or does it take money away from the the private sector? How does that balance, that sectoral balance between public and private change the more that the public sector spends? I've often heard this argument that what when the public sector spends, that crowds out. Yeah private sector investment because um, instead of putting money into productive private sector investment, investors will put money into public sector investment, effectively will buy government debt instead. In actual fact, if you look at how investors construct their portfolios, government debt is hugely important. And when you haven't got enough of it, it causes all sorts of strains and difficulties. It acts like an anchor, a, a, a hedge in their portfolios and therefore actually enables them to take on riskier assets. So there is actually an important role for the public sector in what we might call priming the pump. When uh, when investors are really scared and flying to cash and safe assets, um, there, there is... Uh, the, the public sector actually needs to step in and invest because the private sector either isn't going to or is going to wait for the public sector to step in first because then they feel more confident about doing so. And that's where we are right now. Uh, you won't have private investment, apparently, if the government isn't investing. Yeah, you've you've got, got to prime pump, the pump. Exactly, a pump, pump around the economy, uh, mm. which is uh, definitely not uh, what's happening now. We're letting the right. pump seize up, aren't well, we? So basically. what is going to happen now? Uh, your predictions? Well, I, I mean, Rishi, is he going to last this year? Is he, mm. are we, is he going to get? Uh, is he going to go through to next year? Uh, January next. I can't. You know, it's it's a real election this year for I, sure. And then what's he going to do? Yeah. I think. I mean, is he going to go back to the states? He can't go back to the states and work in the tech right. industry. Has he lost well, his he, green card? Well, he, 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 he can't get a job in the tech industry because he can't even uh, operate WhatsApp. <laughs> You know, I mean, you've got they would have thought a basic requirement. So then, the other glove is obviously Star mm. Wars. So maybe he'll just uh, get an Obi Wan Kenobi outfit and just do uh, you know Star Wars shows yeah. and stuff yeah. like well, that. He doesn't just, need to earn money. He doesn't return. exactly. So just go where your heart is. But what is going to happen? Well, I mean, let's have a think. So I think an election definitely. Yeah. Uh, I think probably some kind of vague economic recovery because I mean inflation's down and yeah. maybe the Bank of England starts mm, with the NHS rates getting better. Will we get waiting list? 
down or will we get to the stage of uh, would you remember not the 9 o'clock news uh, well, years so ago old, yes. yeah, they had a sketch where they were going uh, we're in a very fortunate position that we have an NHS bed available so who's going to start the bidding yes and yeah, you had to bid whoever had yes. the worst double pneumonia to that man over there uh, he could be where we're going uh, yeah, exactly. help us and yeah. uh, of course AI will take over next year as well anyway so it won't be anything to do with any of us well we won't be here no. exactly no, yeah. we'll, we'll uh, all be entirely absorbed into the blob Megan is going to leave Harry and uh, live with Piers Morgan exclusive there yeah <laughs> that's, uh, that's almost bad okay we don't know is the honest answer yes. we don't know what's going to come up but we will yeah. bring it to you here on the and, we, and you know we will become the most popular podcast as oh, well that, that yes, will yeah. almost certainly happen need to say that it's true it's just going yeah I mean exactly yeah. I mean what's yeah. his name Joe Rogan I mean he's just going to give up <laughs> let's not let's not Let's not give publicity to anyone else. <laughs> well, he's got 11 million listeners. He yes. doesn't need the publicity. But look, uh, look, we've mentioned him. I yes. think it's only right that he mentions Entirely us. reasonable. Yeah, Entirely exactly. reasonable. But next week. Yes, next week we're going to look at the political year ahead because it is quite something. Uh, almost certainly an election. Almost certainly, it seems from the polls at least, the Tory party going down the tubes. We will see. We will see, but we'll have an expert to tell us exactly what will happen and get a sense of the direction politically of the course dictate almost everything for us. Yeah, Tim Bale is going to join us on the podcast next week. That's it for this week. Uh, that's it for this year. We'll see you uh, right in at the start in 2024. Have a great Happy New Year's Eve. Thanks Bye. for listening. See you. Bye. The Why Curve.